As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. A quick reminder to our listeners that we have a free app available in the App Store for iPhones and iPads, as well as for the Android on Google Play. Just search for Astonishing Legends and you'll find it. Oh man, if it's not one thing, it's another. It is the curse of Oak Island that it lives. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, as, as you guys know, or maybe you don't because a lot of people don't listen to our outros, but we were attempting to take a one-week hiatus after finishing the fourth part of Oak Island. Ideally to collect our thoughts and get ready for our next topic, which is tonight's show. But a sudden laptop failure mid-record during Oak Island Part 4 waylaid most of that break, and we wound up posting late. Well, thank you for your patience. I can't even remember what was happened over the last <laughs> three weeks with all the uh, turmoil. and yeah. it's, it's a blur. And it, so, But the good news is AppleCare is covering the repair of the old machine so it can become a dedicated studio laptop for us. Although it's a little late because we were already forced to buy a brand new Mac. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> we wanted to get posted. Uh, the bad news is, seven days ago, the air conditioning in my house died. As in, the entire system in my house, in the San Fernando Valley, during not one, but two heat waves, one of which is currently happening. <laughs> so, uh, since I had to move my whole family into our studio, which has stellar AC... Well, that- we are recording in your exceptionally hot house yeah does, does it sound like we're recording in scott's living room well, because that's what we're doing <laughs> we're in the was, dining room at least oh. we can say that but it, it's, <laughs> it is a little echoey so we yeah. apologize for that we couldn't get too excited about setting up a bunch of sound dampeners when it's already 85 degrees and yeah. it, I'm, we're not exaggerating it is literally 85 <laughs> degrees in here well it will sound different that's the that's the point we're trying to make yes all right so let's get into it <laughs> Welcome back to Astonishing Legends. I'm Scott Philbrook, and this is Forrest Burgess. It is surely unreasonable to credit that only one small star in the immensity of the universe is capable of developing and supporting intelligent life. But we shall not get to them, and they will not come to us. P.D. James, The Children of Men. Join us tonight as we explore the Fermi Paradox and the riddle that math created but cannot solve. Okay, so a few months ago, I reblogged a story to our website written by Nadia Drake for National Geographic. And stick with me here because this is going to go full circle in this episode. But Nadia's piece was entitled, Will Humans Survive the Sixth Great Extinction? 
And just just a quick trigger warning here. Yes, we are talking about the end of humanity a little bit tonight, <laughs> but we're, we're going to keep it light. Though. It's not in a couple of months. It's a long time off. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, it, it, well, was, yeah, and not in the history of the Earth. Sure. You yeah. Know, but this article that Miss Drake wrote was an interview with author Elizabeth Colbert, who wrote a book that came out last year. Yes, the sixth extinction, right? And it's got some real science behind it. Yes, she's a real live researcher. She spent several years going out with scientists to the Arctic and all over and, and compiling a lot of information about things that are happening in the world with respect to multiple species, not just humanity. Right. There are some ideas that have actually been on some shows. She was on Jon Stewart, right? I mean, yes, yeah. she was on Jon Stewart talking about it. It's actually an interesting interview, which we have a link to in our show notes for this show. If you want to take a look at that, it, it was it was funny watching him try to put some humor into a book that <laughs> it doesn't have a whole lot of jokes in it, if you know what I mean. No, no it's not real rosy, but but. Uh, but that's his job. Yes, so, yeah. that is his job. And it's also our job to protect you from things that are scary until we get ready to scare you. That's the point, though. It's scary to some folks and in a larger outlook, and then some folks aren't as worried about it. That's right. Right and now. So, yeah, and, that, and that's not really what this show is about tonight. It sort of all ties together, though. We, we try not to get political on this show, but whether you lean left or right or wherever you're at, you might have noticed that things aren't necessarily looking so good for the planet right now. And by correlation, humanity. But you don't have to worry about that listening to this show right now. Right, Scott? No, no. It's, it, that, we're going to let that alone for now. That's just we're going to come back around to this point because it's going to be full circle. All right. But remember who I said did the interview with Elizabeth Colbert? Ms. Nadia Drake. Yes. Right? Well, here's the cool thing about Nadia Drake. And this goes to your point of all things being connected, which I love. Of course, in this case, they're connected for a reason because everybody is working together in the yeah. same field. Oh, I have, a, I have a great connection point uh, later on down in the show. So, oh, great, yeah. great. I, I want to hear about it. So, but anyway, Nadia Drake's dad is Dr. Frank Drake. Yes, the Dr. Frank Drake, right? Yes, of the Drake Equation, which you've probably heard of the Drake Equation, but if you haven't, don't feel like you're uneducated because a lot of people haven't. Heard of it. I probably shouldn't yeah. say that you probably heard of it. No, I'm sure it you've, sticks out in my mind because I'm, yeah. you know, I'm sure you've heard of the other Drake, the uh, the hip hop artist, yes, probably, but yeah. not him. That's yeah, not, no. and it's not Sir Francis Drake either. That was the other big Drake we've been talking about. Yes, yes. there's a lot of Drakes out there, but <laughs> it, uh, <laughs> we're getting off topic here. So the Drake equation is a probability theory, and a probability theory is a theory that you use to analyze something where there's so much data involved. All you can work with is what you can see, and you use what you can see on a smaller level to determine what's happening on a larger level. You can make predictions. Right? Exactly. Okay. And one of, the, one of the simplest ways to describe this is like a coin toss. A coin has two sides. When you flip it, there's a 50-50 chance that it's going to come down on one of those sides. And the more you flip it, if you flip it over and over and over, let's say you flip it a thousand times, the further you go, you'll find that eventually it's going to approach a perfect 50-50 list of outcomes, heads versus tails. So th that's kind of the simplest way to look at it. So Dr. Drake took several known things into account to take a look at the universe. And he wanted to determine what the probability of life was in the universe beyond the Earth. So he dealt with star formation, how many stars would have planets, how many of those stars with planets would have how many planets. <laughs> <laughs> Do you even know what the hell you're talking about? <laughs> Do you want to I, should, I, could have, I should have written this down. So Dr. Drake took several known things <laughs> into account to come up with the equation. Well, you've got to start that over again. Uh, no, I don't have to. Star formation... How many stars have planets and how many planets are around those stars with planets and how many of the planets are in what we call the Goldilocks zone. And the Goldilocks zone is, is this area where life as we know it 
can be supported, which is another thing that we're going to come back to in a minute because we have to talk about extremophiles. Um, yeah, which- but, but I think what you're saying, though, is that he is taking – chunks of what is known and basically like well for life to exist you need a carbon-based planet with with water this and that and these are known things yes and and certain temperatures the habitable zone yes they say in i would say make this point clear as as we know them to be right so what you do then is you plug these chunks into his equation and and you end up with a probabilistic Outcome. Right? That's right. Okay. Yeah, and the, the last component of it was how many of the civilizations achieved an ability to communicate across space. Right. This was meant to spark debate among scientists and and folks like us who like to discuss things like this. This equation is often criticized because it's not being too exact. Well, yeah, there's a lot of conjecture right. involved. But he, yes. he didn't mean it for that. He meant it to just kind of like spark some thinking. Yeah, right? let's yeah. talk about this. Let's talk about the likelihood of this because the sheer quantity of possibilities when you look at the whole universe and you consider all the chances that there are for other planets like Earth to be out there, it's staggering. The Drake equation was the first thing to sort of take a look at this. And also Drake was involved with the formation of SETI, which I definitely want to talk about. SETI, S-E-T-I, is the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. And of course, I can't say it without thinking yeah, of he, that actor. Uh, no, of the <laughs> yeah. actor in Starman, um, the guy that's just, he was in everything. He's like, I'm from SETI, the search for extraterrestrial. And he's sitting down talking to Jeff Bridges and he's like, oh, yeah. Oh, you're not talking about Charles... Uh... He was in My Three Sons, right? No. <laughs> that guy, he's at the at the end, he kind of he's the he's the thinking kind scientist. Yes, right? he lets them go. Was yeah. he in My Three Sons? I believe. All right, we're getting off the Well, God, now I got to look it up. You're going to look All right, you look it up. While you're looking it All up, right. I'm going to move on a little bit. So, <laughs> SETI is the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, which is is a pretty fascinating thing. If you saw the movie Contact, which we seem to be referencing in every episode, it's it's a little bit about them finding a signal or a message, but Drake pioneered SETI as a science with an experiment in West Virginia in 1960. And eventually it evolved into what it is today, which is a search for any kind of communication from an extraterrestrial intelligence. Now we have the SETI Institute, which has been looking for life. The SETI Institute is not as old as SETI itself, but all in all, these groups have been looking for life for around 40 plus years. And all that time, the amount of sky searched in 40 years is comparable to taking one glass of water out of the ocean. That's that's how little has been checked out. Now, hey, if, yeah, and you wouldn't say if you didn't find any fish that there's no fish in the ocean because based on your one on your glass of water that right. doesn't have a fish in it. Exactly. So, uh, credit to uh, Dr. Jill Tarter for that. She was she was actually the inspiration for Jodie Foster's character in Contact. Yeah, she worked with her uh, during the, the making of the film. She's uh, mentioned and profiled in Carl Sagan's book, Contact. Right. And she's awesome. She gives a TED Talk. We'll have a link to that. Yeah, it's and a great it's, talk. Yeah, very fascinating. But uh, no, she's awesome. And and again, a longtime director of the SETI program. Yes. And the the only thing that's been found in all that time that couldn't be found again was what is called the WOW signal. That's actually a famous signal that was a strong narrowband radio signal that was found in August 1977. While he was working on a SETI project at the Big Ear Radio Telescope at Ohio State University. So this signal apparently had all the hallmarks of non-terrestrial, non-solar system origin. And it appeared to come somewhere from the constellation Sagittarius. The entire sequence lasted for the full 72 seconds that the Big Ear was able to observe it, but it has never been detected again. 
So it, right, well, you know the name, right? He circled it on the large printout, and he wrote in "Wow." Yeah, that's where it gets the name. And right? we have a picture of that, and which our... you will see is just it looks like a, a number, a Sudoku puzzle, because it means nothing, it means yeah. something to him. But like, yeah, just a bunch of numbers. It's, it's pretty fascinating. And by the way, this just a few, uh, I think this month or last month, this Russian billionaire, he's a tech billionaire and a venture capitalist, just gave one hundred million dollars to the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. So wow. they, they've been describing that as a game changer. This guy is like he's invested in Facebook. Book. He's he's a hardcore, you know. He's got a lot of money, and he's interested in science, and he's interested in this process. Yeah. You know? Well, all that time uh, you were you were using that on your home computer, crunching a SETI at home, paid off, didn't it? Well, yeah. Well, that's another thing I do want to <laughs> talk about. If you guys have been to our website, you may have seen me pushing Tomnod, which is another sort of shared computing process. Which it, what they use is they take satellite images and they make them available for you to go through and look for things. It's like when MH370 went down. Or if there's illegal burning of land in the Amazon or whatever, you can download these images and you report back to people if you see stuff going on. And that's actually got a human component to it. SETI at home is when you download a screensaver – and by the way, it's a very cool-looking screensaver – and it processes information that they've gathered with their uh, various telescope arrays – to look for another wow signal or some other kind of signal. So what happens is you just put it on your computer, and when you're not using it, it crunches data. And if it finds anything, it sends it back. You don't really know if it finds anything. No. You know what? I did I, boy, I did. It'll that get it first... named for you, though, if it does, by the way, <laughs> for your username, you know. Well, just like... Starfish23, uh, yeah. Isn't that the... Uh... <laughs> oh, my gosh. that Charles Martin Smith. What? That was the guy in oh, Starman. Oh yeah, who is also in uh, what's the meteor? Uh, was the, he in the, My Three Sons or not? No, I'm sorry, that was Barry Livingstone. Okay, good. You were <laughs> no. so wrong. About that. No, they kind of they had the same glasses at one point. That's yeah. where I keyed in. No, that guy talking about getting something named for you. That was Elijah Wood in Deep Impact, which Charles Martin Smith was also in. But he that one destroyed the Earth. So anyway, getting back to your <laughs> your end of days kind of uh, you know storyline here. Yes, the fun part of end yeah. of days. Anyway, what I was going to say was that SETI at home. The the really cool thing about it is that you can be involved in the process to look for an extraterrestrial signal. And it's funny back when I first started out as an assistant editor in the early days of working on Avids, we my the office, the company that I worked for, and hopefully none of them are listening to this right now, <laughs> we had several Avids, which was an editing platform, you know, like Final Cut Pro or iMovie or now it's Adobe Premiere everybody's using, but whatever. These machines back then were like $150,000. They were state-of-the-art. Now you can edit, you know, you can spend like $2,000 and do everything you need. <laughs> well, Scott will edit this show on his phone. Yeah, just right. Let you know what's happening here. <laughs> but these things that, you know, we would be loading uh, footage in, and at night the machines stayed on, and they had at the time very powerful processors. And I did install the SETI at Home software on at least three Avids. <laughs> I would let them run all night crunching yeah. data. Well, what year was that, though? Because this is. That would have been in the late 90s. Wow, I think I, I think I did it even earlier than you. I cannot believe it. But I, wow. when I had a uh, I had a phone modem going, and what it would do is, a, yeah, it's a screensaver. You let it run, and it's actually the same idea as hooking up a giant Arecibo antenna, like they have in Puerto Rico. That's the big bowl, right? That's that's like, the giant. Is it bowl. suspended or is it in the ground? Well, no, the receiving unit at the focal point there is suspended. That's so like on basically, it's, yeah, yeah, it's but like a dish giant caldera. The... Yeah, yeah, basically, that's how you can do it that way. Or the other idea is that you get a large amount of antennas all hooked together, working as one. And that was the idea of crunching all this data. Yes. All right. So the thing about the Drake equation, though, is that it was inspired by something that predated it. And this is what motivated us to do this show tonight. 
the Fermi paradox, or it's now called sometimes the Fermi heart paradox, which is the more evolved version of the paradox. Now, Enrico Fermi was born in 1901 and lived till 1954. He was a brilliant physicist and one of the original contributors to quantum theory, right? Yes, and nuclear and particle physics and also statistical mechanics. So he he excelled in several different fields, and he's kind of known for that as well, not only theoretically, but experimentally. Oh, that's very cool. Yeah, well, and then he won the Nobel Prize in physics in 1938. So, yeah, he's no slouch, as I say. Well, you know, I had had always heard of Fermi's paradox. Anytime somebody says paradox, that's a fun word. You you latch on to it. (laughs) Uh, Fermi Lab is also named after him. That's right. Yeah, there you go. That's also fun to say. I had kind of forgotten about it, though, until I came across a really amazing video on YouTube a few months ago created by a group of folks who call themselves uh, maybe you should say it instead of me Kurzgesagt well that's okay that's <laughs> that's probably way off but oh, no I think it's, it's pretty All right. Well, okay. we'll find out I'm All sure right. we'll hear from them <laughs> we have um, some German fans that will correct us <laughs> well I actually reached out to them personally and told them we were going to be referencing their video and oh, yeah. we, we might actually use snippets from it and they said that was totally fine they were great they were super cool but they're, they're very cool and fun to watch and they make it they explain it in such a way that it uh, you get it and yeah uh, the name loosely translates to in a nutshell yeah so yeah. and the, this Fermi Paradox video that they made is only about six minutes and what these guys guys do is they produce animated short science videos that are super entertaining. I'm actually supporting them on Patreon. Oh, nice. Um, And yes, by the way, look for a Patreon page from us soon. We're getting pretty excited (laughs) about that. Mm -hmm. Uh, But if there ever was a worthy cause, these guys are worth checking out and and supporting as well. Uh, If you check our links in the show notes for this video or just Google YouTube and Fermi Paradox, and when you see a cute little alien graphic, you'll know you found it. Um, It's been watched over two million times. Yeah. So it comes up pretty close to the top. But anyway, this video reminded me of some of the specifics of the Fermi paradox that later wound up in one way or another in the Drake equation. Here's some of the major facts from it. You can go watch it and get it. It's really informative. It's a lot of information in six minutes, but here's some of the major facts. The first one is the observable universe is 90 billion light years across. 90 billion light years. So at the speed of light, if you could travel at the speed of light, which we can't, it would take you 90 billion years to cross from one end to the other and that's just what's observable. That's my refrigerator that just turned on in the kitchen. So we're, but we're going to keep going. Man, I wish the door was open because uh, if it sounds like we're recording in a dining room that's about 90 degrees, that's exactly what's happening. Uh, we have uh, – yeah. I actually, I actually took my shirt off. <laughs> no, I was about to say, thank goodness there's no video or periscope. Yeah. That, no, that, yeah periscope's a bad idea. Uh, yeah, especially in this case. <laughs> so 90 billion light years across. 100 to 100,000 billion stars per galaxy with 100 billion galaxies, okay? So what that translates to is multiple trillions, trillions with a TR, of potentially habitable planets in the observable universe. And I want to stress this again. It's only what we can observe from this blue dot in space. We don't even know what's beyond what we can't see. What we can't see, exactly. So if you want to think of this in another way, there are 10,000 stars in the observable universe for every grain of sand on Earth. Wow. You know, that photo that uh, blows you and I away is the, I think it's the Hubble field view where it looks like a bunch of stars and it's not. It's a bunch of galaxies. That picture. It's endless. Yeah, that picture, we have that posted with this episode. One of my favorite pictures that the Hubble has ever taken. When you first look at it, you think, oh, look at all these pretty stars. It looks a little bit like a weird special effect from Star Trek because it's it's kind of (laughs) soft focus. But then when you look closely, you realize that everything in the picture that you think is a star is a galaxy. Yeah, with its own innumerable amount of stars contained within it. Exactly. 
since it's pretty much impossible to conceive, the video, the Kurzgesagt, the Kurz, the in a nutshell video <laughs> focuses on the Milky Way, which contains a very easy to wrap your head around number of 400 billion stars. The video does an amazing job of extrapolating all this down to the paltry sum of one million potential planets with life being in the Milky Way alone. One million planets. And that's taken with the fairly pessimistic number of only 0.1% of the planets likely to exist in the Goldilocks zone or the habitable zone. The video goes on to make a lot of other fascinating observations about types of civilizations, how they get wiped out, are they existing at different times, and all that stuff's super fascinating. But since you can watch it yourself here at Astonishing Legends, what we wanted to focus on was the more specific question posited by it and posited by the Fermi paradox, which is... Where is everybody? Exactly. Yeah. If there's a million planets right here in our own galaxy, which, you know, granted, it's pretty big. Even we can't travel across it at our advanced, but probably likely in the grand scheme of things, primitive state. Where, where are all the aliens? Why aren't they here? <laughs> but I wanted to mention one thing that kind of blew Scott's mind, because at this point, you get philosophical. And I mean, like, philosophical exercises, like Zen, like, what is the sound of one hand clamping oh, yeah. kind of things. That tree used to be Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> <laughs> it could be. But to wrap your head around what the universe is, I think one of the current models is that there is no center to the universe, and there's no edge. Now, just go back and think about that for a bit. You know what well, I'm saying? Yeah, and the other thing, what, what was the the link or the video? You sent me some information that I read when we were researching this about the mistake they made because they thought as a result of the Big Bang that the expansion was slowing down when, in fact, it's still accelerating. We are accelerating outward and away. And on top of that, I feel like I watched something maybe a year ago talking about a river of galaxies. Like, like they're all collecting together and they're all flowing somewhere and no one knows of course where they're going <laughs> well um, it gets really crazy because yeah if you get into uh, what physicist brian green starts talking about is the multiverse of universes begetting other universes in an endless cycle and this is again getting back to the philosophical thomas fusco is a writer he's a physicist and philosopher and writer uh talks about well you know, scientists have a theory, a model of the Big Bang and the expansion of galaxies and stars. And, of course, we come from the inside of an exploding star of the two basic elements, helium and hydrogen, developing to such a degree that we become, we become what we are right now. Anyway, backing up, they don't know what came before the Big Bang. And philosophically, Something cannot come from nothing. Well, and this can, you know, it's funny because when we were talking about Oak Island, one of those phrases that came up and comes up sometimes and was recently, I think, not a great horror film, um, As Above, So Below. And we came across this phrase when we were talking about Oak Island. I can't even remember the context now. But I had read that it had connections to alchemy. Yes. And that As Above, So Below could be conceived as the behavior of the universe on the level that we exist at all the way down to the quantum level, and that this is the way that science works, even though quantum theory was not around when that phrase was was written. No, but if you think about it, well, I mean, on a very simple level, an atom has an electron, think of hydrogen, one proton, one neutron, one electron circling it, 
much like the planets. It, exactly. it all, it the all models, just keeps going. Exactly. It's and all based on something else. That's larger. why I've always kind of thought that it was possible. And it's funny when in Men in Black, in the first one, when the universe is on Orion's belt, it's actually on the collar of a cat. It's like in this little <laughs> well, thanks tiny for spoiling movie. A, well, a 15 if you year old haven't movie. seen that yeah. movie by now. <laughs> okay. it, but it's in this little thing the size of a marble. And you, you can't help but think that that's possible. Because if it's as above, so below, and that's an ancient mystical knowledge. Is it possible that we are existing in, you know, our entire universe is a drop of water from a piece of rain landing in a puddle that's so monumental in size? Does it just go infinitely down and infinitely up in both directions? Well, I don't know. Yeah, that's one theory, though, is, again, it's the multiverse, is that there are infinite numbers of parallel, possibly, universes. and. And look at fractals. Yeah. It's the same thing with fractals. When you start looking at them, when you drill down into the math of it and the beautiful math of like fractal patterns, and if you haven't seen these things, they're amazing. Uh, I'll, I'll, po- I'll post some with this episode. But you, and when you drill down into them, it just keeps it the same thing. It just keeps going and going and going. Yeah. And it's hard not to think that that's the way the universe works. Well, because it repeats yeah. itself in nature, or even on our own planet. That's what I'm saying, Scott. Is that that's the theme, kind of, of tonight's show? Or that's one of the one. These I love are all we're still talking about the theme. We're 30 minutes in. <laughs> these are all big ideas. Yes, and that's what I'm getting at, Scott. Is that there's nothing bigger than the infinite. And and again, I want you to think about that because you're like, what? It's it's. There's no center to the universe. There's no center point. There's no edge. It just keeps going infinitely on right and and in regards to tonight's topic the fermi paradox that being the case is there really nobody else out there is that is that really possible and maybe they don't exist on our plane if we are all just in a little droplet of water in a puddle of you know that's splashing off of a raindrop in a much larger universe the life that is out there would be so big and crazy that it would be too big for us to even understand or realize and by the way, we're not assailing your belief in religion or your belief in God or whatever you may believe as one of our listeners. These theories don't necessarily exclude any religion, and we want to make that clear. What we're talking about is just the nature of the structure of the of the physical world and the physical universe. So my point is that if it is as above, so below, and we're existing in a cat's collar, the cat itself – we would never be able to recognize it. And it's like our friend Travis said, who I was recently visiting in Texas when I was at Podcast Movement. He said, you know, I'm standing here next to my aquarium. I'm looking at this fish in my aquarium, these uh, mollies, I think he said they were. And they just had babies. And he's like, I stand out and I'm looking in there. I see them in there. They have no idea about me. They don't know that I exist. And, you know, if I get busy, the aquarium gets dirty or they go hungry. It's, it's like I am, in a way, I'm a god to them. I can fish one out. And take it and put it in a plastic bag on my counter and leave it there for an hour and put it back in there. And if it could talk, it would tell this amazing story, right? Kind of like Jodie Foster's character in Contact. Would the other fish believe it? Of course not. It's outside the realm of their possibility. Is that another form of life? Yes. However, I'm getting too far off the beaten path. I need to reel it in anyway. I'm, I'm getting a little too, like, it's like that, you know, after you've had a few drinks at the campsite, you're yeah. just sitting around, like, or, you know, but these just are sitting all, around yeah. talking about the all the possibilities. Well, that's that's it. These are theoretical possibilities. Nobody knows for sure. I don't care how smart of a physicist you are. That's what Fermi was talking about over lunch with Edward Teller, one of the other fathers of the nuclear bomb. I guess what the story was 
is that in 1950, and of course, this is after the war, you know, 1947 was a big year for UFOs. And that's kind of what we're, you know, it's a little bit part of that's this. That's Roswell, Come on. right? That's Roswell. And 1947, sure. There was a bunch of sightings that happened, and they were at lunch discussing this at the Los Alamos National Laboratory. And then, you know, they're discussing like, hey, do you think we'll ever see a faster-than-light type of ship piloted possibly by aliens? And then this Nobel Prize-winning Enrico Fermi wonders, like, well, okay, if that's the case, if they can travel at at these high speeds, there's these advanced civilizations, certainly there's all these planets and stars out there, where is everybody? And that's what he meant. Yes. Where, if they're all, you know, the possibility of life being out there in this vast, infinite universe, where certainly the, the probability is that there are planets like ours out there, or close enough to have some kind of life on them, and they've been around for maybe billions of years longer than we have, with billions of years of technological advancement, why haven't we seen any yet? Right. And by the way, that brings me to like one of my first thoughts about the whole idea is the gap in existence. Because if we're talking about millions, we've only been here for a fraction, a very small fraction, in like the last few seconds, if you look at a timeline of the existence of the Earth, we've been here, humanity. We're 13.2 or 1 billion years of of they think the universe's existence... We're like the last second on the last minute of the on the right. on the on the clock here, and during yeah. an even smaller part of that time, have we developed technology? And an even smaller part of that time is our tech. I mean, we're still, you know, lighting things on fire to shoot <laughs> them off the planet. Well, that's how that's how we still get around <laughs> chemical propulsion. Yes, which now you you got to wonder, like, okay, yeah, we've come a long ways in just a hundred years. Now add a hundred thousand years to that. To a civilization and what they could do with technology. And again, too, in the grand scope of things, in the age of the of the universe, life isn't necessarily developing at the same place on other planets. So a whole civilization could have come and gone and evolved to the highest level, or at least maybe the highest level where it couldn't quite get off its own planet and then died out. And then not only died out, but everything it ever did fell into ruin or vanished and is just gone. And then we came along. And there's no chance for us to communicate with them because unless and, – and this is where it gets really interesting – because the signals are – because the – geographically in terms of the universe were so far apart, one of those civilizations might have sent a signal that would take two and a half million years to get to us. And we would get it and we'd be, oh, this is amazing. But what we would be looking at is what they were two and a half million years ago. Yeah, at you're actually point, looking back in time, right? Right. Yeah. And they could be totally dead and gone by then or evolved to such a point that they're standing behind you while you look at their message. I, you know, it's like, <laughs> right, right. So it, it gets into this whole, like, these multiple levels of things. The, the interesting thing to me is, like, the whole where is everybody. My son, Rowan, asked me what tonight's show was going to be about. He He knows about the podcast. He hasn't listened to them. Some of them are way too scary for him. He's only six years old. Actually, more of them are than I than I thought, because I actually showed him the Fermi Paradox video, because I was like, oh, hey, this is a little bit of science. It's like car- a nice cartoon with funny shapes. Yeah, but at the end, it talks about death and destruction and the end of humanity. And I mean, and by the way, I'm still saying to watch it, but I mean, if you're a six-year-old, you don't want to hear about the sun exploding or the universe disappearing, which eventually it's going to do. Everything's going to go haywire. But he couldn't conceive that, like, billions and billions of years from now wasn't the same thing as, you know, next week. <laughs> <laughs> well, no. That's, and that's what we were saying is that in, this, in the span of time here, we're just a, we're a dot. Exactly. And, but, like, as above, so below, being the dot in time on this planet and in this universe, it's, it's, 
it's infinite. And so even if there isn't anybody else out there, does it really matter? That's another big question. It's well, like, that is a big question. I, I, and the other, because I was trying to convey to Rowan, I said, the Fermi paradox means, and he does not know what the word paradox <laughs> or means. Fermi, or Fermi. But I basically yeah. said, the idea is that there's so many planets out there that there's probably life somewhere else, and why aren't they here? And I said that to him, and he said, no, no, Dad, they are here. And I said, what are you talking about? He said, well, I saw, um, the other night, I saw a UFO, and it was in the front yard. And it had a door on the bottom, and it opened up, and a little guy got out. He was green, and his head was shaped like a triangle. By the way, I have no idea <laughs> well. where – culturally, though, he's – this has just happened. It's Whether it's cartoons or whatever he's taking, it's not me telling him this yeah. stuff. And it's coming into his head, which you know goes into the whole thing where Whitley Stryber talks about in communion and sort of the common alien abduction themes yeah. and are these just sleep paralysis issues and everyone's seeing the same thing, which ties into mass hysteria and all that. All I can tell you is that my six-year-old definitely has a cultural concept of what an alien looks like. Yeah, of course. But it, let's not get off the beaten well, path. Well, no, but I, one, thing, one point I wanted to make is that you'll, it's kind of like what Fermi was talking about at lunch. I think there's a, a big point here that's being missed. Is that what, what he's really saying is when he says, why haven't we seen them? Is why haven't they landed on the White House lawn and shook hands with the president and made themselves known? Yes. And what Rowan is getting at is that they're already here. Yeah, he said they're already here. And if you believe what he believes, there is no Fermi paradox. <laughs> now, <laughs> yeah, that's going back to the original lunch where Fermi is talking with Teller. And why are they talking about this? Because people were seeing... Some kind of craft flying around, which which was not an airplane. It exhibited non-ballistic motion. And this comes back to an interesting point that our friend Travis made in Texas, actually, because I was speaking with him tonight about this episode. I knew that it was something that he would be interested in because he's a huge fan of uh, Coast to Coast. Not sure if you guys have ever listened to that show. Uh, It's sort of the grandfather of all sort of supernatural and paranormal shows. Uh, It's an AM radio show that's four hours long. Uh, (laughs) Travis is a big fan of this show, and I knew he would be interested in tonight's episode. So I had asked him about... I, or I had asked him if he had any thoughts on this, and one of the things he said to me that I thought was interesting, something that hadn't occurred to me, was just sort of the the observation quotient of what an alien life form might be. Now, again, everything we've talked about thus far is making an assumption that life evolving in completely different parts of the universe, or for our sake, the galaxy, is going to come up in a similar fashion, which is not necessarily the case. But let's say if it did come along and it had societal structure like we did and interacted like we did and there was uh, there were sexes and sexuality and and society and all that kind of stuff if they came down here they would more or less observe and this is for you uh, trekkies out there they would observe the prime directive which is not to mess with things if if they're even remotely benevolent like you said, don't come and park on the White House lawn, Mars attack style, and you know, then shoot the president in the face. <laughs> you've got to like, you've got to maybe observe quietly, stay out of the picture, especially if you're more advanced or sophisticated than the ones you're observing. Why would you cause? Why would you wreak havoc on a planet unless you really wanted to see what would happen? Kind of like. Hitchhi- well. Hitchhiker's Guide, <laughs> you know? No, but uh, it, <laughs> that, that philosophy, which yes. is hilarious, but right. But you know what? That's the thing is that it would really disrupt things. Can you imagine? Because once if they did make contact, and then it's like, well, what's your origin story? Well, what's ours? How's that? Are they the same? No, we believe in this. And uh, but at the on the other hand, 
Would it unite people? But, you know, so these are big questions. Uh, probably not. I don't Who knows? Well, I you mean, never know. But yeah. it, Can we get behind any? Yeah. It's only going to unite us if they're threatening to destroy the whole planet. Then, yeah, maybe. <laughs> I can see at that point Kim Jong-il or Kim Jong-un is going to be like, oh, yeah, I'm going to help. <laughs> well, but what, what's going to happen? I mean, that's the thing that we don't know, but probably people are going to be very upset and freaked out for a little while while we kind of figure this out. Well, or, the, or it could be uniting. It could be like, hey, you know what? Stop all this bickering because the big deal here is that you guys got to learn to get along. That's the big picture well, for and, you. And I, and I have a couple of ideas about them already coming or already being here. One of them is one of my favorite stories, which we're going to be doing an episode on at some point, is the Delphos Ring, which was an incident that took place – in I think it was Kansas. Was it Delphos Ring, Kansas? I can't remember. It's somewhere in the it Midwest. Yeah. And I- anyway, it's not important right now. We'll do a show on it later. But the, <laughs> the bottom line is there was tangible evidence left behind. And the people that saw this thing th- that landed on their farm, it left a residue that scarred the woman of the house for life. She had like burns on her skin that never went away. There was a lot of really strange stuff that happened there. There are cases like this around the world where things have been witnessed that defy explanation, sort of terrestrial explanation. So in those cases, you can say, oh, you know what? Something has been here. But then you come to another theory, which is extremophiles. And extremophiles are like tardigrades, water bears. I don't know if you guys know what water bears are, but these tiny, teeny, tiny little things, they can live in space. They can live in vacuums. They can live in extreme heat. They can live in freezing temperatures. And they're very cute when you look at them. You can't see them without a microscope. But They, they almost look like small toys. Yeah, they look uh, like well, Especially the toy. snout with the little two holes in it. But what, the, what their, their secret is is that they can expel, I think, up to like 90% of the water in their body, they basically become little freeze-dried backpacker meals while they're hibernating, and they can spring back to life when the conditions are right. Yeah, they can dehydrate themselves. Yeah. I mean, so we talk about life as we know it, the life that comes here. How do we know that, like, if, if these there's forms of life that are living in these hot methane vents in the bottom of the ocean, we've got the tardigrades that are living in vacuums, why would you even want to come here? It's not habitable for you. It's yeah. not... You, and do you want to communicate with us? Maybe, maybe not. If, if our world isn't made up of primarily nitrogen, maybe you don't want to live there. We're not necessarily going to be occupying a house that they want to visit. Well, that's kind of my point with, I would say, mainstream science here. But the distances that have to be covered, and even with the, the Fermi paradox of that, uh, what's, what, what are the figures here? That even within 10 million years, the span of our galaxy could be colonized. Slower yeah, well, than, if we had multi, and one of yeah. the things they mentioned in the in the Kurzgesagt, in the Kurzgesagt, Kurz, in the in a nutshell video, <laughs> yeah. was that right. if you had a multi generational vessel that could sustain life for a thousand years or more, yeah, just people living on the ship basically yes. is in generations and after generations, after Battlestar Galactica stuff, yeah, you exactly. could colonize the entire Milky Way in two million years, right? Okay, so then they arrive here. And I think your point is like, well, what's what is, what is the point of them coming here? Are they, are are we just amusement, or we're like cattle? They're tagging with a radio collar, and they're just going to find out how we live. What's the point of them coming here if they are? But my point is that you're kind of assuming they have developed like us, they think like us, and what if they don't think at all like us, and we can't even understand? What if the they don't they even think? think? Yeah. I mean, what if they're the Borg? I hate to keep going back to Star <laughs> Trek, but like there's. Yeah. There, there's a lot of different ways things can happen. I mean, they could be liquid creatures. They could be sophisticated amoebas. They could yeah. be some form of life that only functions when more than a million of them are together at once. It could. There, there's so many things that could be happening. So 
for me, if you're looking at all these probabilities for life, even sophisticated life or intelligent life, who says microscopic life couldn't be intelligent on some planet? If it was microscopic, unless it harnessed nanotech, it would still be completely incapable of leaving its environment. Yeah, it, it didn't need to. It just sits and, and philosophizes yeah, it stares out at the a lot by itself. Thinks about a lot of deep stuff. Yeah. Just sitting there, and it's like the uh, the this little puddle. It, it the Hulu. It's the uh, yeah the the Lovecraft creature, which is just basically asleep in a deep oh, ocean yeah. that you don't even know about, but legendary and powerful. It's an infinite amount of ideas and theories about what could be out there. But what people are assuming is that yes, they have similar technology. I, what I'm what I'm positing is that. They have possibly technology that you have no idea about. And then there's a lot of theories we'll get to here in a second where there might be some folks who are high up and very intelligent who claim that we do have the knowledge and possess the technology to travel between the stars. I read this book. It was a PDF download that was free a few years ago, which I've mentioned to you before, Forrest, but I don't think I've, I've told you guys about uh, our listeners, called uh, Above Black. Um, and it, it was kind of a super fascinating book. I, I think it's still available online. If it is, I'll be providing a link in the show notes. It's, it's a book written by a guy who claims that he was involved in an ESP project where he was supposed to be communicating with the greys, for lack of a better word, or these one of the most common form of aliens that are cited in alien stories when it comes to the Earth, and that he would go into a trailer. They were he was strip searched before he went into it, and then he would go into this trailer and he would sit down and he would have a piece of paper and a pencil, and he was to reach out to these greys with his mind, and he would get numbers and write them down. And he had no idea what the numbers meant, and all he got was the numbers. And eventually he would try to ask questions, and sometimes he would get some interaction. But it was a very disciplined activity where the communicators on the other end were devoted to really just giving the numbers. And when he would leave, he would be strip-searched the whole nine years. He couldn't take anything with him, so finally he resorted to memorizing some of these numbers and eventually realized that they were coordinates, latitudes and longitudes and that sort of thing. It didn't go a whole lot further than that, and the story is actually even even weirder. He ultimately came to the conclusion that he was half alien, half human hybrid, and that was the only reason he was able to do this. And then on top of that, he had been intentionally bred specifically to have this skill as part of a group of people that were designed to be liaisons between humanity and these aliens. And this is wait. This is nonfiction or this is, fictional this story. Supposedly nonfiction. He's, he's I know be, this is yeah. super fringy and right. all well, that he, stuff. And but Scott, remember, remember the carrot? Yes. Report the C A R E T. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. But one of the things that he says, the real whole reason I'm sharing all this, because some people are like, oh, okay, I'm turning this episode <laughs> off. But one, of the, yeah, about forty minutes ago. Right? Yeah. No, one of the things that he talks about is there's a method of propulsion that has yet to be discovered by man that is somehow based in constructive interference of sound waves or something. And he actually made allusions to, I can't remember, to like a, a speaker company. It might have been Bose. I can't yeah. remember. But he was <laughs> sort of suggesting that there was technology there in sound and that the way that sound worked that would allow for traversing great distances. No, and, that is one of the big theories. It's all about harmonics. 
then you get into string theory, which is uh, currently, uh, you know, a working model here. Right. And uh, no, that's one of the big ideas is that it's, it's, it's harmonics and vibration and that, you know, our matter exists on a certain vibrational frequency. And if you're able to tune into that or warp it a little, you can bend the laws of physics. Well, not to get back to the famous lost episode, but when Ed Leeds Gallman built the Coral Castle <laughs> which yeah in Florida right he was moving you know 6 and 7 ton blocks of coral by himself this frail little old man and he never gave up how he did it but when he when he died they found all these wires that traversed over his land and tuning forks and there was some theory and also he had placed the coral castle itself at a specific point on the magnetic grid on the earth and so there was this theory, or what he said was that he knew how the Egyptians built the pyramids. And some people have posited that he was discovering a harmonic nature to coral. And anything that has a constant sort of value to it, like coral or cement or a particular stone that it has a consistent value, has this harmonic frequency that if you tap into, you can do all kinds of things, including levitate tons and tons of material. You know, we'll get into this at some point, but what you're talking about sort of is zero point gravity. Yes. And zero point technology, which again, people think that we are already using right. uh, governments around the world, not just the U.S., for various craft. But you know what? It's actually some of that technology is employed like in the B-2 stealth bomber. The leading edge of the wing, I think, is positively charged, and the trailing edge is negatively charged. And what that does, is it gives it propulsion. Really? And aids. Yeah, it's something crazy like that. Uh, how significant, though, can the propulsion be? Well, it's not a naturally flying. It's not the biplane of the of the Wright brothers, where it just takes a, a small motor. You're talking about a giant, <laughs> giant stealth wing. But my point is that this is really advanced technology that was developed by Ben Rich, uh, director of Skunk Works, who was handpicked by Kelly Johnson, the founder of Lockheed Skunk Works. What is Skunk Works? Well, those are the top secret black on black projects. Uh, right. and, and what they did is he he describes what it is. He Wait, said, I just I want to quickly say I know what Skunk Works is, but oh. I, oh, okay. I you didn't to ask want, for the sake of our list. You didn't want to see him on cool yeah. in, in the milieu. Here. Why don't okay. you tell <laughs> Why don't you tell these guys what Skunk Works is? Well, he's uh, actually uh, I can have, I could tell you what he said about it. He answered some questions. Now, he passed away in 1995. Now, what's interesting though is on his deathbed, he was asked some questions about UFOs and top secret stuff. And he had some interesting things to say. And one, he kind of describes what Skunk Works was. And he says, we were a small, intensely cohesive group consisting of about 50 veteran engineers and designers and 100 or so expert machinists and shop workers. And our forte was building technologically advanced airplanes of small number and high class for highly secret missions. Now, where it starts to get interesting is that he says... We already have the means to travel among the stars, but these technologies are locked up in black projects, and it would take an act of God to ever get them out to benefit humanity. Anything you can imagine, we already know how to do. Now, did I say that this guy is not one of your typical... Yes, he's not in his basement with a foil hat combing over UFO magazine. Not that you would use all those things, one thing, to, to come up with these uh, fringe kind of theories. Right. This guy was a leader in his field. Didn't you imply to me earlier tonight when we were, you know, prepping for this show, didn't you imply that the SR-71 may have been reverse engineered to a certain well, extent? Well, he, uh, uh, what I had heard is that he based some of the design on a possible UFO that he saw himself. Why? Okay. Now, when you, okay, then it gets even deeper here because Ben Rich was asked uh, how UFO propulsion works. And what he said apparently was, let me ask you, 
how does ESP work? Then the questioner responded with, well, uh, all points in time and space are connected. And Rich then said, that's how it works. Wow. Okay, that's pretty big stuff. Again, getting back to everything is connected. Everything is connected. All but, right. But it's my, th- it's my theory, though, that it's like you can, have a, you can fly a UFO, and it shouldn't be really hard. The manual is not going to be 10 inches thick. It's going to be easier, and it's going to use something like ESP, maybe. I don't know. ESP. I mean, ESP to me was, you know, I think I mentioned this on an earlier episode of the show, but... I sat down with my great-grandmother with the Kreskin's ESP board, and she held <laughs> up you know, a couple of wavy yeah. lines, and I had to guess you know, what was on the yeah. card. Yeah. No, it worked no. pretty well. When I was younger, it worked. the older I got, the harder it was to make it work. Oh, there you go. Well, d- d- what do you always say from uh, Ghostbusters? What said Dr. Peter Venkman's uh, with the wavy lines? Oh, yeah. A couple of, I already <laughs> said it. A couple of wavy lines. Okay. I just said it there a minute go. ago. And then he, it's, uh, then he shocks him, and the gum comes out of his mouth. <laughs> Well, in any case, uh, so what you're saying is, in, in terms of science, we, we may already be at the point where we could complete interstellar travel. Well, that's what he was claiming, and where we got it was partly from Roswell and being reverse engineered to the point that the tester, you know, model kit, that yes. design was actually based on some of the forensic reconstruction of Roswell. The model of yes. the UFO from and Roswell. And eyewitness testimony. Now, basically, let, I'll end here with uh, one of his last statements. They asked him about UFOs, and he said, There are two types of UFOs, the ones we build and the ones they build. We learned from both crash retrievals and actual, quote, hand-me-downs, unquote. Hand-me-downs implies collaboration with uh, aliens. Yes, with right, somebody with who already has, like, you know what, this thing's an old bottle. <laughs> I'm going to give you, like, a, uh, a rambler, you know, <laughs> and you guys can, can figure out how it works. Hand me down. Yeah. So, and then he goes on to say, the government knew and until 1969 took an active hand in the administration of that information. After a 1969 Nixon purge, administration was handled by an international board of directors in the private sector. So, somebody is keeping this going and has the knowledge about the all this stuff. The Bilderberg Group. Well, the Illuminati. Go. I don't know about that, but somebody is obviously... Uh, this is the thing. People are seeing things. I believe... You know, I don't know what it is. I can't tell you. I don't know. I, don't, I wasn't there during you the know, building. the aliens across the street are watching or, this house through <laughs> their binoculars. Well, according to Roe, they're right outside, and they're, it's like a, you know, great gazoo. Again, yeah. <laughs> another, maybe that's where he got it, from Flintstones. He, hasn't, but he doesn't watch the Flintstones. It's, it's pervasive. That's, I think that's what the point you were making. Yeah. And what I'm saying is that, oh, I don't know, it's some massive hysteria or people really are just all seeing the planet venus on a bright clear night i'm not going with that way all right so but here is something else i did want to touch on uh, you know before we finish the show and and we are getting close to the end but what uh, there are people myself included that think it's possible if you if you look at the big picture and you say interstellar travel is impossible nobody can bend time and space let's 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 go back to the supposition that they do they are organic creatures with social structure and hierarchy like us which again that rules out the extremophiles like the tardigrades and whatever but let's say that they are similar to us humanoid even in a way like they say the grays are maybe they're already here Maybe they've been here the whole time. Maybe they live under the ocean. Oh, yeah. U- USOs. <laughs> USOs. Right? Uh, unidentified submerged not the objects. <laughs> not the one who puts on shows for our troops no, overseas. No. Yeah, no, that's right. a different group entirely. Okay. But uh, we, if you take a look at, for instance, my favorite USO story, which we will do an episode on ultimately, the Shag Harbor incident. 
about yeah. you know these these two uh, craft that crashed in the water in front of an entire town. All the police, all the citizens saw go down. The Coast Guard came. It is a crazy story, but the but the point is there were hundreds, if not more, witnesses to this. And I, I believe it was Columbus's expedition, or there was some expedition they actually witnessed something coming out of the water and flying away. These stories have been around forever. There's some people that think, oh yeah, maybe interstellar travel isn't necessary. They're under the ocean. They've been down there forever. They're still down there, and they got nothing to worry about because we can barely exist down there unless we're in this metal tube, nuclear-powered metal tube with no windows. Are you going to talk with me at all about this, or are you just going to read it on your laptop? <laughs> I'm sorry. Are you, are you just going on about... Uh, Am I USOs? I, yeah. I mean, I know it's fringy. Are you, do you have any thoughts on USOs? Or Well, I, it's... What about look, that cave in Santa Monica Bay? Yeah, exactly. Well, look, this is... Should a, we talk about that? The giant... I don't. You know what? I've I've known. I've read that's uh, under the water. <laughs> it is a shelf, right? Yeah, that was it's a thing. shelf. It looks Next like it has the, a huge uh, entry under yeah. it. But I, I gotta confess it. When they first released the Google image, you know, they, Google has maps of the ocean floor, and they show this thing that looks like a giant garage. You know, and people were, yeah. oh, it's a submarine base, or it goes all the way to Nevada where they build the submarines and bring them in and out this way, or it's because, it, believe it or not, in Santa Monica Bay and around Catalina Island off the coast of Los Angeles. There is a high number of sightings of UFOs going in and out of the water. Very high. Yeah. Well, that was the point I was going to make, is that there, there are hot spots. Not far from where Natalie Wood died. Oh, yeah. But it's not Catalina, right? It's, uh, what's the other, ch- uh, the segment? Oh, the of, Channel uh, Islands. The Channel Islands, yes. yeah. And so, yes, it's a hot spot. There are these hot spots around the world. And, yes, I think the debunker could say, like, well, no, it is some kind of a mass global, we're just seeing stuff. You right. know that's not there. It's it's been you know even your son is seeing stuff that's not there. Just well, well he's he doing it for he's stories. doing it for, yes he's yeah. doing it for entertainment purposes. <laughs> and maybe these people other people want attention. Maybe that's what the debunker would say. Yeah. But I believe that so many people have seen something that they believe was genuine. That there's something going on. If it is our government or various governments around the world, okay, then where did they get that? Or was there just a massive boost of technology at some point? I've had people tell me, like, well, no, you know what? This is a modern phenomenon. We Nobody saw anything prior to World War II. That's when, you know, the Germans were developing uh, the Foo Fighters, you've heard of those, and, and flying orbs that were buzzing our planes that there was a technology boost around this time. They had a breakthrough. It came out of nowhere. Yeah, and part of it ties in with zero-point gravity. That was developing, and then it kind of went quiet. What like is zero-point gravity again? Oh, Did I ask you this a minute ago? <laughs> oh, right. You hate it when I ask these No, no. It's Can a, we just sum it up? Just like in two, three sentences for, for our listeners. And, well, and this I'll, one, I actually have no idea. No, and I'll I've just, heard I'll of just, it, but I don't know what it I'll is. I'll just tell you that uh, it's, it's part of a phenomenon that has to do with charged electrical particles being able to levitate, hence... Like gravity doesn't exist, zero point, which allows you to travel and not have to suffer the effects of what airplanes have to go through, you know, with, with wind and gravity. So you're, hmm. you're getting, you know what I'm saying? It's, it's a method of propulsion that is breakthrough. We'll do a whole show on it at one point because it is fascinating and it's, the whole subject is fascinating and is documented. I mean, its whole history is documented up to a certain point where it just kind of fell off the radar, so to speak. But one point that I wanted to make, and of course this goes back to one of your favorite things to say, Giorgio Suclos, ancient Sucolos. aliens, Alien. is that this is not a new phenomenon. People have been seeing things since the beginning of people. And they've been recording it or writing it down. Of course, you've heard of Ezekiel and the Wheel. That's a, that's a big one. Remember that commercial that I think it was Hal Lindsey or somebody kept talking about it? But here are a couple of my favorite ones throughout history. So in 1480 BC, the pharaoh Tutmosis 
Records seeing circles of fire. Okay, so th- again, this is what I'm getting is that the first evidences of people writing things down that are kind of like, well, that's a little weird. Let me just get the scribe and we'll uh, jot that down in some clay tablets. <laughs> <laughs> should, somebody should know about this later scribe, on. Scribe, get in here. <laughs> Years from now, people will be sitting with their uh, without their undershirts talking about this yes. on some kind of recording device. This is one of my favorites here. 329 BC, Alexander the Great's army is buzzed by a couple of UFOs. Yes, I've heard this story. Yeah, well, one, I love Alexander the Great because he was just, he was a young guy who was really efficient and great at what he did. He was the great. Yes. Conquered the world nearly. So uh, anyway, so his army cavalry column gets buzzed by what they described as gleaming silver shields. And of course, men and horses just freak out. They run away for a bit. That's Can you a, imagine that moment? It's uh, like that scene. And I don't know if you've seen the new Star Trek movies. I keep talking about Star yeah. Trek tonight. but Yeah, really. The, the, begin, the beginning of, of the one where they're on the planet and they're trying not to be seen by the indigenous cultures. And, yes. Oh, it's such a great scene. Oh, yeah, yeah. Like, Can yeah. you imagine like the primitiveness and the, the clash between... No, it's be, it's out of your your realm of understanding right. saying that. And like, yeah, how what would you even interpret that as other than you know you saw something pretty spectacular. Right. So again, that's what I'm getting at. Alexander the Great, it's like this is pretty unusual. We should write this down. <laughs> and and then 7 years Scribe, later, get in here. <laughs> the, the guy that we just <laughs> conquered, yes. And then 7 years later in 322 BC, while attacking the Phoenicians at Tyre, and that's an ancient seaport, I think now it's the modern-day city of Sur in uh, southern Lebanon. Uh, anyway, as they're besieging the walls of the city, one of these weird craft comes down, shoots a beam of light at the city wall, and crumbles it and allows Alexander and his army to take the city. Wait, what? Yeah. You're telling me that a UFO <laughs> helped Alexander the Great take the city of Tyre? Apparently so. No, I wasn't there, of course, and uh, but that was what was reported okay, in so these that shows. that just opens yeah. up a huge like, well, can of worms. Because now they're helping it. people out. Right, yeah. which makes you think maybe they're people. Well, Maybe they're time travelers. I, I don't, don't know. know. What's well? What's the point? We need of Alexander? Alexander the Great yeah. to succeed, or it's going to change this whole timeline. Yes, this is like there's an IBM fifty one hundred inside yeah. tire that he needs to change the time clock on because whatever. But you know, yeah. if you listen to one of our previous shows, you'll know what we're talking John about. John Teeter. No, but this is them uh, interacting, and obviously, like. I like that guy. He's young. He gets stuff done. He's attacking this city. We're going to help him out. And they do. Now, what's what's strange, though, is that, yeah, like what you just mentioned, Alexander, I'm sure it's not like it's it's in the common knowledge of the day that, oh, there's UFOs, and my son just described one landing on the lawn, and a little green guy came out. This is probably pretty foreign to them. But my point being is that this has been happening throughout history. Now, another one, and, I, and this, this is even more modern here, so in 1463 in Europe, a slab-like object is seen in the sky, surrounded by flames and a bright light. Oh, yes, I'm That's another, yeah, too, and then, yeah. then that was sketched. That's a famous one. Yes, I yeah. think because it was sketched by Hermann Schaden and, uh, of the day. And so, Scribe, get in here. <laughs> you guys, you, can, you that sketcheth well. <laughs> you know, bring your, your oh. color pad. So get in here. But that's what I'm saying is that now people are recording. People have been recording this, but now it's now they're doing artwork. And there's a course, oh, we'll have a great site that has a lot of uh, cool artwork throughout history that has supposedly weird things in it. And if oh, you yes, want, that's going to be in our show notes. Yeah, so if, if you haven't seen, if you don't see them when you download the show on your, on your iOS device or wherever, you can go to our website and find them. 
Yeah, and I'm like, you know, if you watched any of these History Channel shows or these ancient alien type shows, you, you know what we're talking about here is that it's not, again, this is not just a new phenomenon. That's the point I'm making. Uh, but this is one of my favorite ones here because it was seen by the whole town. So, in, and I also love that the, they know the exact date. So, April 14th, 1561. Ardo Domine. Sorry, I wanted to sneak a little Sir Ian McKellen in there. Right, anyway, with the impression. <laughs> I got to do one every show. The whole town, early in the morning, between 6 and 7 a.m., the whole town of Nuremberg, Germany, sees what appears to be a UFO battle in the sky. Now, that what's. Oh, this is the one with the woodcut with yes. all the different shapes and the. Yeah. I always remember there was like a flute with circles on the side of it. Yeah, well, no, that's what it is, is that people. Again, it's not just one dude with some, you know, eating some bad mushrooms. Woodcutter, get out here! <laughs> with the, in the next two hours, <laughs> chip away with what do I describe to you. Yes, you yeah. must chip quickly. <laughs> Before I forget. The, the, no, what they saw were these giant, huge round cylinders in the sky. Now, this is what's interesting huge round cylinders appear in the sky. All the people that are up in the morning there, real early, see this. Okay, everybody stops like, what the heck? You know, and these uh, orbs come out of these large cylinders and appear to be attacking each other. Okay. And things are lighting on fire. Look, these people know what bloody, fiery battle looks like. And that's what's happening in the sky, but with shapes and objects they've never seen before, nor are in their... Yeah, the sky being territory that's off limits to them. <laughs> <laughs> they, they really don't have any access to that. But no, yeah. what I'm saying is like that's again. If you describe that now, people say like, "Well, you watch too much Star Trek." Did it have the the NC seven hundred one? Yeah, you yeah. Know, one that's not in their milieu. Anyway, that's one of my favorite ones because there's there's a picture of it. We'll try and get that up on the website. But yes, it's absolutely. pretty cool looking, even for uh, back then. I know that one like the back of my hand. I've been fascinated with that one since I was a kid. Right. And then uh, five years later, 1566, people in Basel, Switzerland, see what appears to be another UFO battle in the skies, uh, where objects are are being uh, consumed by fire, and then they disappear into Hmm. nothing. So what is that? Is that interdimensional? What's going on there? Obviously, they're describing things that, you know, modern day folks here would understand is like, okay, that's a yes, UFO battle. Again, you're watching too much sci fi. Yeah, but then you're wondering, like, okay, in the course of this battle, if it did take place, any one of these ones, which we're talking about being cited multiple times, were the two parties that were fighting, were they fighting with each other with no regard for humanity? Or do one of them represent a defense for us and the other one an aggressor? Well, you don't know. I mean, there's, again, if you want to get real fringy, the, the things that I've heard, oh, there, there's, there's, there's several, there's at least four races of aliens. And uh, there's a couple, you know, reptilians, and then you got ones that look like us that, it, it, again, it's changed throughout history. The ones that from the 50s look like us, blonde hair, blue eyes. It, it, it's crazy. We can't even get into it right now because it, it just spans so many different theories and people's purported experiences. Uh, but basically... There are some that are that are helping us. There are some that are not so helpful, and then there's some who are just really right, just indifferent. That some that break into your house and <laughs> yeah, well, steal your socks. Exactly, one and, sock. Yes, and and are, and are leaving things. You're, you're not being helpful. <laughs> well, they're they're misplacing some probes. Right. Well, if then you know an, what I'm yeah, yeah. Well, and then another one comes and puts the sock back. That's the helpful one. <laughs> That's right? the, and then well, no, I like the ones that are just indifferent. Like I don't really care what you guys are doing. You're just yeah, you're stinky beasts. Well, that um, brings me to a point. This point of indifference. One of the things that's interesting to me everyone's talking about oh seti let's get back to seti we're looking for alien life we're looking for this communication 
you know what I find about I just had a birthday. Just uh, actually uh, today. today. Yes. Yeah, happy birthday. <laughs> I was going to say, today Scott is, is 56. Yeah, no, I'm not. Come on, 40, 46? Yes, I'm 46. Oh, congratulations. Okay, I announce yeah. it. As I get older, one of the things that I find is that I'm becoming less and less social. I, <laughs> that know, just I, happens. I have yeah. friends that live very close by. I don't see any of them. <laughs> well, and it's not that yeah. I don't like them. I love these guys. That's more scheduling. Well, yeah. it's scheduling, but it's also even when the time's available. You know, it, it probably doesn't help that, you know, I'm, I'm also a stay-at-home dad. So my days are very full. Right. But I don't want to go out and do stuff. I think with civilizations, that might be happening, too. Because when a civilization gets to a certain age, there's a certain wisdom that comes with age, <laughs> right? Sure. I think maybe you don't want to pick up the phone. You don't want to call that planet. (laughs) Yeah, there's something over there. Let's call them. But wait, what if they're super mean or they have a lot of weapons or they've really been looking for salt water? Yeah. Oh, (laughs) Maybe maybe we should just – we can watch or or maybe you're nervous. This just happened on February 13th, 2015. Scientists, including Jeffrey Marcy – Seth Shostak, if I'm saying his name right, yeah. Frank Drake, who is now 85, by the way. Oh, yeah. yeah. Elon Musk, founder of Tesla and uh, SpaceX, right? SpaceX is him, right? Or is that Branson? Uh, no, that is, that's uh, Elon Musk. Yeah, that's Musk. Yeah. yeah. So SpaceX, Tesla, and David Brin, at a convention of the American Association for the Advancement of Science, discussed active SETI and whether transmitting a message to possible intelligent extraterrestrials in the cosmos was a good idea. <laughs> right. So, right. All right. So these are some of the greatest minds of our time. You're talking about the conquistador idea. Yeah. Right? And so, okay. Yeah. And so w- w- one result was they came out with this statement after they all sat in this room. I can only imagine the discussions in this room. And they came down to this conclusion, quote, worldwide scientific, political and humanitarian discussion must occur before any message is sent. Yeah. Uh, by the way, on March 28th of 2015, Seth Shostak published an essay related to this in the New York Times. So I want to try and get that link, but you have to subscribe to the Times, I think, ah, to get access okay. to there. But we'll see if we, if we can get that posted. Anyway, the, the, here's the rub. If we're nervous about reaching out, who's to say those guys on the other end of the line? It's like a couple of kids in high school who both have each other's phone numbers yeah. and don't are afraid to call. <laughs> <laughs> That's the, or, yeah. like I said... It's you get to a point where it's like I'm ready to be antisocial in my life. Yeah. Yes. Well, again, if you're an advanced civilization, like what are we gonna, you know, what are we gonna offer you? You've yeah. already got everything. Maybe you're just monitoring us. Well, that is one. You know, talk about scary theories. That is one that I heard. That well, what do we have? We have an eternal soul. Some believe soul energy. That is the one thing that we can offer them, and somehow they're trying to figure out how to harvest it. That's probably the scariest scenario I've I've come across. Yeah, that's a good. That's a that's a frightening one yeah. because there's not there's not what you can what can you do about that? And that's another point I was getting. It's like whether we are in a universe teeming with other life that are just poking around, colonizing everything, or we're totally alone. You can't really do much about it. At some point, you just have to worry about yourself and your family and your loved ones and be a decent person because all this other stuff that's happening around, you have really little or no control over it. Get your house in order. Get your house. Get your own house in order. There's other evidence that we're being monitored. You know about the incursion there at Malmstrom Air Force Base. Yeah, that's one of the uh, There's most, a great, yeah, yeah interesting book called The Faded Giant. Another story we're going to have to do, the Malmstrom, also Rendlesham. Uh, there, yeah. I mean, there's... 
where nukes, they both had something to do with uh, nuclear weapons. Going offline. Yeah, which aren't supposed to happen, Yeah, uh, but which was reported. And, of course, there were some sightings reported in conjunction with that. Now the, the debunkers will say, like, well, that they're just being tested by higher-level government forces to see what they would be doing in a scenario like that. Or you can think that it was a message from a higher civilization saying like, hey, you know, we can shut this off at any point. So just be careful of what you're doing. Yeah. Because or you, yeah. maybe they did that. Maybe they understand time in a way that they that we don't. And that shutdown prevented some catastrophic future event. Well, there you go. The butterfly yeah. effect. I, You know, I don't yeah. know. We get down all the rabbit holes. And tonight's probably the fringiest episode we've ever done, right? Yeah, we, we don't really, we didn't really broach this topic yet because there's a tremendous history to it. If you're talking just about alien life and UFOs outside of SETI and the accepted normal, you know, scientific points of view, it's beyond that. And there's a whole world of that. And so if we do anything else in the future like this, I think we'll pick, like Scott said, the Delphos ring. Yeah, specific that's, things, cover that story. Yeah, specific things that have happened that are just interesting in our point. And we're not telling you one, you know, I'm certainly not saying I know what's out there because I don't. I do believe, though, that uh, people are seeing strange things that may or not be of this planet. I couldn't agree more. And for me, and looking at the big picture of tonight's show and Fermi's Paradox and the Drake Equation and everything that we've talked about, aside from the, the thing yeah. that you just said about having our souls harvested <laughs> and crushed up in, might, a, yeah, in a grinder, might trump my original fear, <laughs> right. which was that we're alone. It, yeah. In this vastness, when you understand these hundreds of billions of, you know, trillions of possible planets that could have life, how is it the, the miracle of the life on this planet becomes even more of a miracle when you take that fertile area of the entire universe and you say, this is the only place it happened? Yeah. And somehow, not that we shouldn't be concerned about the things that mankind is doing to the planet in terms of our resources and how we're managing them and and that sort of stuff but it it does for me have more gravitas to it when you think we're on this tiny little piece of dust and it's just us and this little piece of dust if we blow it that's that's yeah. the end of life in the universe well yeah and what you know putting it into perspective when carl sagan described their team having voyager turn around one last time and take a picture of earth and you see it as one little blue speck, which we hadn't seen before, really. And, you know, astronauts describe that as well. When they get off planet, it changes you mentally. You get a picture of, like, that's the big blue marble there that we're all on. And all of our, you know, turmoil that goes on on the Earth, how insignificant that is in the big scheme of things. And it makes you realize how insignificant we are in the span of the universe, but also how very special. <laughs> Well, that's going to wrap it up for tonight. Yes, it is. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll be back in two weeks with a show on a topic we have not yet decided on. Please remember we have a free app in the App Store and also available on Google Play. Our theme was composed by Judson Crane and our sound design by Ryan McCullough. Thanks to Jim Creative Design for our logo. Most importantly, we want to thank our listeners. You can find us online at astonishinglegends.com as well as Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, and Google+. Copyright Scott Philbrook and Forrest Burgess. Good night.
As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply. 